from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, how are you? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, February 14th. Today, President Trump will declare a national emergency to get funding for a border wall, a critical clue in the Mueller investigation, and the linguistic complexities of saying, I love you. I've just had an opportunity to speak with President Trump. Just after 3 p.m. today, Senator Mitch McConnell came to the Senate floor to make an announcement. And he, I would say to all my colleagues, has indicated he's prepared to sign the bill. The president has decided to sign the government spending bill. And by doing that, he'll be preventing another shutdown. But because that bill only includes about $1.4 billion in funding for fencing along the border, he's going to take a different route to build a border wall. He will also be issuing a national emergency declaration at the same time. And as McConnell was making this major announcement, White House reporter Josh Dossie... Do you want us to do a sound test? Hello. ...was covering it from the newsroom. For the past, I guess, eight weeks now, seven weeks, the president has vacillated on whether he should do it. His lawyers have weighed whether he should do it. And now it appears that in conjunction with signing this bill to keep the shutdown from happening, there will also be a declaration of national emergency. And by declaring a national emergency, what will he actually be able to do? It certainly will be battled in courts. There's a lot of concern that the president does not have the powers to declare a national emergency just for a border wall, whether it sets a a damaging precedent over executive power. A lot of even some of the folks in his administration are concerned about that. Uh, Basically, what it allows him to do, though, if he is able to do it, is to take money from other parts of the government and unilaterally build the border wall along the southern border uh, with Mexico. Uh, Normally, you know, Congress has to appropriate funds and then the president and the executive branch gets to spend them. But in the declaring the national emergency, he skips the appropriation part from Congress and uses the money himself. When we'd spoken earlier this week, you'd said that even Republicans in Congress were kind of leery of the idea of declaring a national emergency because it is such, some would say, an overstep in executive power. Then why is he doing that? Why is he ignoring the concerns from Republicans? Well, he's doing it because the president said he needed $5.6 billion for the border wall or more. He's gotten none of that. The first offer before the shutdown was $1.6 billion. Now this offer, after a five-week shutdown and three weeks of negotiations, is $200 million less than the first offer. If he does not declare a national emergency or some sort of executive action that allows him to make progress on the wall, this whole episode will be for naught. And it will be seen as, you know, a capitulation on the president's part. Wait, you shut down the government, put 800,000 people out, out of work had all of these deleterious effects, uh, some on the economy, some on the country, and you're going to actually get less money for your wall than you were in the first place? That's a hard pill to swallow. How are members of Congress reacting to this so far? Well, you're questioning me about 10 minutes after it was announced, so uh, (laughs) it's hard to really know. What we do know is that there's been scant support among Republican senators so far to have a national emergency. Even Mitch McConnell, who now on the Senate floor says he's going to support the national emergency, has warned the president against it, saying, my conference is not in favor of this. For some members of Congress, I think it will be a relief. Without him declaring this national emergency, what was going to happen was in September, when there was another government spending fight, 
the wall was going to come up again. It still might come up again, but it was definitely going to come up again. It was going to be this kind of perpetual cycle of fights that tying the wall to keeping the government open. And there are a lot of people who are really tired of this dilemma, tired of, you know, the shutdown over this, tired of the three weeks of negotiations. So even those who are morally maybe opposed or frustrated with the national emergency, there's a palpable sense of relief that we're picking up that maybe this is over for now, maybe that we're not going to do this again. You know, I mean, for eight weeks, right, the entire national conversation has been on whether the government is going to be open and how much money there's going to be built for a while. I mean, it's taken over every other topic. But then if it becomes a legal battle or a battle in court, it seems like that doesn't get the president that much closer to actually building a wall on the border. That's correct. If he loses a battle, of course. I mean, this possibly could win. But it would get tied up in the courts in theory. Right. But that allows the president, he can go out and say, listen, I told you I was going to build the wall. I'm doing everything I can. And these different judges are stopping it from happening. I think that's a more effective message for the president politically than... I capitulated to Democrats and didn't get the money I promised, and maybe the wall's not going to be built so fast after all. I mean, the court battle at least delays this fight, and it moves it to a different arena. And I think those are both things that uh, could be helpful to the president. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you. Josh Dossie is a White House reporter for The Post. Shortly after McConnell's announcement, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi criticized the president's plan to declare a national emergency. And she said her Republican colleagues should also be worried. We will review our options. We'll be prepared to respond appropriately to it. I know the Republicans have some unease about it, no matter what they say, uh, because if the president can declare an emergency on something that he has created as an emergency, an, an, an illusion that he wants to convey, just think of what a president with different values, can present to the American people. President Trump could sign an emergency declaration as soon as Thursday night. In August of 2016, three men had a meeting in New York. Paul Manafort, who is at that time Donald Trump's campaign chairman, the guy in charge, goes to this meeting at the Grand Havana Room, this really New York institution. It's a private cigar club on the penthouse of 666 Fifth Avenue. What happened in that cigar room is at the heart of Robert Mueller's investigation into the Trump campaign's ties to Russia. I'm Rosalind Helderman, and I'm a political investigations reporter for The Washington Post. Ross has been reporting on this one meeting for more than a year. There he meets a Russian employee of his political consulting business, a guy he's known for more than a decade, who has flown in from out of the country for the purpose of having this meeting. That guy, Konstantin Kalemnik, has become a central figure in the Mueller probe. And they bring along Rick Gates, who also worked on the Trump campaign and also knew Paul Manafort going way back. Last week, one of Mueller's prosecutors said in court that this meeting was crucial in determining whether there was criminal coordination between Russia and the Trump campaign. And this week, a federal judge ruled that Manafort lied to prosecutors about that meeting, among other things. And that violated his plea deal. 
We at The Post were the first to report that this meeting happened. We learned about it in 2017, about a year after the meeting took place. And when we first learned about it, we were told, actually by Konstantin Kalimnik, that this was a private visit. It had nothing to do with the presidential campaign. They talked about unpaid bills. They gossiped about the political scene in Ukraine, which is where they had both worked together. Well, since then, we've learned some additional things. First of all, we've learned that in the days prior to the meeting, Kalimnik sent Paul Manafort this really cryptic, weird email. The subject line was black caviar. And he writes to Manafort, I had a meeting today with the man who gave you the biggest jar of black caviar. We spoke for about five hours, and I have messages to tell you. And then he sort of starts talking about the logistics, basically saying he'd like to do this in person. When would be best? And Manafort writes back, Tuesday is best. So Tuesday is August 2nd. That is why Kalimnik comes to the U.S. He is carrying messages from whoever this man is who gave Paul Manafort the biggest jar of black caviar, which we've been told everyone who reads the email interprets to be money. This is the guy who paid Paul Manafort the most at some point in the past. And this is all important because at this point, a judge has determined that Paul Manafort lied about that meeting to the Mueller team. Yeah, that's right. So everyone will remember that in the fall, Paul Manafort agreed to plead guilty and said he would tell the special counsel's office everything he knows about anything they're interested in. And he sat for a lot of interviews. He sat for 12 interviews and went before the grand jury twice. And we've just been through this process where the special counsel has said that actually he kept lying. Even in those sessions after he had pleaded guilty, he kept lying in a variety of different areas. But one of the things he lied about was his communications with this guy, Konstantin Kalimnik. And there's this really important fact about Kalimnik that you have to understand about all of this, which is that the U.S. government says they have assessed that he had ties to Russian intelligence. Had them in the past, had them during the campaign. At that moment that Paul Manafort, the campaign chairman, is sitting down with him, the FBI says he was sitting down with a guy tied to Russian intelligence. So what does that say about the Mueller investigation and about what we know of, of collusion between the Trump campaign and, and Russia. So we've learned some new things kind of in the last week or so uh, about what the special counsel's office has been investigating about this meeting. So basically, they have said that Manafort lied about his communications with Klimnik with regards to two different topics. And I should note that all the documents they've put out about this have been heavily redacted. So we got to do a certain amount of guesswork comparing it to past documents. But our best understanding of what they've said he lied about was, first, that at this meeting, he and Kalimnik talked about a peace plan for Ukraine. So you hear peace and you're like, oh, well, what, what's that got to do anything? Sounds good. Well, they should talk about that. But you have to understand that that is a top foreign policy goal of the Russian government. They essentially invaded Ukraine in 2014. There's been sort of conflict ever since. And it's the reason the U.S. and other countries have imposed economic sanctions on Russia. So they really need and want a resolution to the Ukraine situation, preferably in their mind that would allow them to retain Crimea, the portion of Ukraine that they had invaded, and would result in the lifting of sanctions. So that's one thing we know that the special counsel was looking at Paul Manafort and Kalimnik talking about at this meeting. The other thing is it seems to be that they have alleged that Paul Manafort gave Kalimnik internal Trump campaign 
polling data. It's a very strange thing to do. You have to wonder why he did it. Was he just trying to impress people in Ukraine to make money for himself? Did he intend for it to land with the Russians? Did it land with the Russians, whether he intended for it to or not? And it is clear from these documents that they have at least been investigating whether that handoff occurred at this meeting. I think we heard from the special counsel's prosecutor, Andrew Weissman, last week in a hearing. They called this the heart of their investigation and said that this meeting was of significant interest to the special counsel's office. And it's significant because it edifies the idea that the Trump campaign was coordinating with Russia on on trying to win the election. Well, it certainly speaks to whether or not that occurred, right? You've got this meeting with a guy who apparently is in touch with Russian intelligence, and the two things they seem to be talking about are what Russia wants and what Russia can do, right? Like, one of the big questions has always been, essentially, was this a quid pro quo? Did the Russia intervene and help the Trump campaign in exchange for some kind of wink and nod promises that if Trump is elected, they will get what they want? So here you've got this meeting where both of those topics are being discussed, what Russia wants, what Russia can do, potentially. There's a lot of facts we don't know, and it's very important to note that the special counsel hasn't charged anyone with doing those things. And, you know, there would be a very easy case to make if they could prove that that's how it went down. So the fact that they haven't filed that case might suggest that they can't prove that that's how it went down. But clearly, that is what they are investigating. Well, yeah. So what the judge did rule on Wednesday was that Manafort had lied about, you know, when he was talking to investigators about that interaction. And I feel like that's a thing that we've seen over and over again during the course of the Mueller probe is that people aren't being charged with criminal collusion. They're being charged with lying about what kinds of interactions they've had. And so you have to wonder, like, why are all these people lying? And what does that tell us about what was actually going on? Yeah. I mean, you've seen it over and over again. Mike Flynn lied about his contacts with Russia. So did George Papadopoulos. So did Michael Cohen. Now so did Paul Manafort. And so is it that they are lying to hide kind of the deep, dark secret, the secret that the Trump campaign was, in fact, conspiring with Russia. We don't know that. That certainly is an option. It's a logical option. There are other options. They each have their own reasons to lie, and it has nothing to do with one another. They're just kind of liars. Donald Trump has surrounded himself with people who tend to lie. I mean, that is an option one has to consider. Or that they're trying to get pardoned and they're doing whatever they can to make it appear to Trump that they are on his side. Yeah, and there was a suggestion of exactly that in the hearing that took place in a sealed courtroom last week, but we've seen some of the transcript. You know, I do think you saw this come up very explicitly in the Michael Cohen case, an acknowledgement that Michael Cohen understood what the messaging of Donald Trump was about Russia and conformed his own story to match that public messaging because he did not want to cause political problems for the president. Unfortunately for Michael Cohen, he conformed that story under oath to Congress, and it wasn't true. So you say that this meeting between Manafort and Kalemnik is at the heart of the Mueller investigation. And now that a judge has ruled that Manafort lied about it, where is the investigation going to go from here? So as usual with the Mueller case, we don't entirely know. We know 
where it goes from here involving Paul Manafort. This whole process about whether or not he lied has to do with his sentencing, which has been set for March. He has been convicted of very serious crimes, and the reason why he pleaded guilty was he wanted certain benefits that you can get in sentencing when you are cooperative. There's a benefit you can get from having shown that you accepted responsibility from your crimes. There's a benefit you can get for having provided useful information to ongoing investigations. So as a result of this ruling from the judge, all of that's off the table. He gets none of that. He was already looking at serious jail time. Now he's really looking at the possibility of being sentenced to spend what would be the rest of his life in prison for a 69-year-old man. Roz Helderman is a political investigations reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. Why the meaning of the words, I love you, actually depends a lot on the language that you say them in. I've been reporting on dating and relationships for four years. And it doesn't take an expert to see that there's a lot of fear around saying I love you for the first time in a new romantic relationship. Lisa Bonos writes about dating and relationships for The Post. And she says that it can sometimes seem really hard for an American couple to say they love each other. It turns out that's not the case in other parts of the world. So I went around the newsroom and asked people what this relationship milestone is like in other countries where they're from. I am Olivier Laurent, and I'm French. We're very quick to say I love you. I'd say it's after a few dates, maybe a few weeks. For couples in the Arab world, I love you comes a lot quicker than it does here in the United States. And that's partly because like and love translate to the same word. My name is Zainab Mudalal. She's from Iraq. So it's like not uncommon for it to happen very quickly. It's just kind of an, a sign of interest. Like, oh, I like you, or I love you, or habbek, or habbej. There are a few other words that take it a step deeper. I think in Iraqi, a really common phrase is amut alech, or amut alek, if you're saying it to a male. And essentially, it sounds kind of dramatic when I translate it. It means like, I would die for you. I'm like dead in love with you or whatever. (laughs) In Latin America, there's a difference between te quiero and te amo. Both phrases mean I love you, but te amo is a little more serious. My name is Eli Lopez. He's from Venezuela. The intensity, the relationship that you have depends on the person. Querer, you can querer your relatives and your friends. Amar, it's a little more intense. In a relationship, maybe you start with the quiero at the beginning to show that you care for the person. But that definitely gets you into te amo territory. So if you say te quiero at some point, you might have to say te amo very soon. In South Korea, people don't say I love you very often to each other. Even parents might not say it to their kids very often, but that doesn't mean the love isn't there. I'm Michelle Yehi Lee. She's from South Korea. I mean, I love my parents and they love me. But it's just not a real cultural thing to say it to your parents or back and forth a lot. And so within my family, we kind of have a code word that we use that means I love you, but it doesn't make us feel awkward about it. It's herangsa, which is sarangae, but it's backwards. <laughs> so it's like saying you love I, backwards. Even in English, I love you can mean different things depending on where you're from. I'm Frances Steed Sellers. 
She's from Britain. I can say I love you, but actually we don't really say it when I think about it in British English. I asked my American husband about this the other day, and he said I don't often say it. In fact, if I did start saying it now, after all these years of marriage, he might be a little suspect. Maybe we shouldn't be putting so much pressure on I love you here in the United States. Perhaps it makes sense to say while we're still working things out in a new relationship. It doesn't have to mean that you're getting married. It could just mean I care about you a lot and I want to see where this is going. How do you say I love you in your language? The BBC I Love You is The other ones would be like I hope you have a lot of love in your life. However you like to say I love you. I hope you have a wonderful Valentine's Day. Lisa Bonos writes for and edits the Post's Relationships section. That's it for today's show. We want to hear what you think about the podcast, so head to postreports.com slash survey and share your thoughts. People who complete the survey can enter to win one of five Amazon gift cards, each worth $100. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. making post reports for a couple months now. And we want to hear what you think about the show. Go to postreports.com slash survey to share your thoughts. It takes just a few minutes and you'll be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. That's postreports.com slash survey.